0: Form of my servant, sermons for a while, which we called uh, sermon briefs. It's another example of pastoral shorts. It's great, thanks. I think. Uh, all right, let's get down to uh, something a bit more uh, edifying here. Book of Galatians. We've come to the uh, end of the book uh, after three months. And uh, to Paul's last words here, this final paragraph, chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. For those of you who do not have Bibles, and I know that some of you uh, don't have Bibles with you, there is a, uh, the, the text of this particular portion of Scripture is in the bulletin on the inside of that uh, mauve uh, insert. And uh, you can follow along with us. Galatians six eleven. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised, simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world for neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation and those who walk by this and those who will walk by this rule peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God from now on let no one cause trouble for me that is no one question my authority for i bear on my body the brand marks the scars of jesus The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. If you were to happen to stumble across the original of Paul's letter, two things would strike you immediately. The first is that you have now become very, very rich. And uh, the second is that uh, it has an odd sort of ending. Um, This book probably... Comprised two or three uh, pages of papyrus. They wrote on sheets of paper about the size of a normal uh, eight and a half by eleven sheet. Uh, instead of using paper, they used papyrus. Our word paper comes from that term, and it was suitable for writing. Normally, they um, they hired scribes, professional secretaries, to uh, write for them, and. Uh, that was Paul's consistent practice. He either hired someone or one of his friends uh, took the part of a scribe and took dictation as Paul gave it. These scribes wrote very precise, neat script. I've seen some of their works. Beautifully done. Well done. But when you came to the end of the letter, you would, you would be... Uh, Surprised, your, your eye would be arrested. Your attention would be grabbed by the fact that uh, there's a large scrawl at the end that Paul is spraying words all over the page in a large, bold script. Apparently, at this point, Paul said to his scribe, Hey, Linus, let me have the pen. And he took it from him, and he took the sheet of papyrus. And he began to write himself in very large letters, as he puts it. See how large letters I am writing to you. Some have thought that he wrote in large letters because he couldn't see very well, and it's almost certain that Paul did have some sort of eye affliction. Uh, In Galatians 4, remember, we're told Paul himself said these people loved him so much they would have plucked out their eyes for him. Luke uh, indicates in, in the Acts of the Apostles that when Paul looked at the Sanhedrin when he was dragged before the court, he had to squint at them. He couldn't see them very well. So apparently he had some eye affliction, either some disease that, had, uh, that was taking away his eyesight or he had failing eyesight. So it's possible that he wrote large because he couldn't see. I'm inclined to think, however, that he wrote large because he wanted to magnify what he had to say. It's a form of underlining then. It's a fairly common practice saw a Peanuts uh, segment once where Charlie Brown was uh, industriously drawing lines on a piece of paper. and Lucy, Lucy says, uh, no, is it Susie? What's her name? Lucy? Yeah, Lucy says, uh, what are you doing? He says, I'm practicing my underlining. So in case i ever writing anything significant, I can underline it. <laughs> and... Uh, Paul apparently had been practicing his underlining because he underlines every one of these last verses from 11 through 18. Grabs our, our eye, or would, if we were reading reading the original. Well, what is it that Paul wanted to magnify? What was so important? The last paragraph seems almost like a throwaway text. doesn't seem to say much, just a tagline. But what Paul is doing here is summing up for us the difference between... What we have called folk Christianity, that is that body of tradition that's built up around the real thing, and authentic Christianity. And his summation is found in verse 15, neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. This is the most significant statement, I believe, that Paul makes anywhere in this in this book. Now, this is the heart of the book. And what Paul is saying is that externals don't matter. What matters is what God is doing on the inside. Now this answers the question that uh, we often ask ourselves. How can I rid myself of my past? You know, all these awful, messy things in our life. Spouses that we have damaged, children that we've hurt, friends that we've estranged, things that we've done to our own bodies and personalities. Well, how can we undo what we've done? And uh, we look at the present. How can I uh, rid myself of the habits and compulsions, the habitual actions that are so uh, self-destructive? And the future, what, what can I do in order to gain some measure of, of uh, power over, uh, the, uh, over the sins that dominate in my life, the patterns of life that are so distressing? And what about heaven? And what about God? How do we get to be the friend of God? How do we become... How do we get on his side, his good side, so to speak? Well, uh, there are two ways to approach that uh, whole issue. One is that it's something external, something that we do, or it's something internal, something that God does. And Paul says clearly that it's the latter. It's not a matter of externals. It's the work that God is doing within us. It is the new creation, his work, something that only he can do. Now, what he does in this in paragraph is contrast those that fix on externals and symbols and rite and ritual and signs with those that fix on the reality. And he sets up a series of comparisons and, and contrasts. In verse 12, he says, Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh... Try to compel you to be circumcised. That's the first mark of someone that, uh, is unfocused. He's not, well, he's focused on the wrong things. He's not focused on the, on the realities of Christian living. There's a tendency to be preoccupied with externals. In the church, it takes the form of, uh, baptisms and confirmation. How many members you have? How many programs you have? The kind of buildings that you have? Uh, focus on on robed choirs and uh, highly educated clergymen and those things which in and of themselves may not be bad but which are not the real heart of what the church ought to be when Barnabas came to the church in Antioch, he was sent by the apostles to sort of troubleshoot that situation because things they weren't sure, the apostles weren't sure of how things were going there his part, his comment was he perceived the grace of God that was there. That's what you look for in a church, not the external signs of God's habitation, but the inward evidence of his dwelling there. Paul says to, uh, of the church in Thessalonica, When I went there, he said, I saw your labor of love and your work of faith. What he saw was, was uh, their, their utter dependence upon God. And the love that they had for one another. You see, these are the things that ought to mark a church, not not these external factors. Uh, on an individual level, this preoccupation with externals shows up in another way. A fixation on uh, dressing the right way and and looking good. You know, I always think of that uh, character on Saturday Night Live that interviewed these plastic Personalities, and he would always say at the end of every uh, every interview, "Remember, uh, looking good is better than being good." Uh, it was this this notion that we have to always look good, we have to look right, can't make any mistakes. Uh, a preoccupation with the body and you know, with making the body look a certain way—you know, being thin for him, or being a firm believer, or. Uh, you know, whatever, uh, whatever uh, course we take, it uh, has to do with the outside. Isn't There's nothing wrong with taking care of yourself. There's nothing wrong with dressing appropriate, appropriately. But it's a fixation with that, you see, a preoccupation with those things. Rather than in letting the grace of God work in your life so that you're becoming more and more like him. See, the, the whole process of, of the Christian life is one of beautifying our lives. As we go from one degree of likeness to Christ to the next, it's what's happening inwardly. It's what God is doing to us. You see, not uh, not what's going on uh, on the outside. And uh, the, the problem with always having to look good is that um, people who are trying to be good by keeping the law uh, can't be good. Have you ever noticed that? Paul draws that conclusion in this statement. He says, even those that compel you to be circumcised don't keep the law. One mark of legalism is that uh, it's it's, uh, counterproductive. It doesn't produce more godliness. It makes us more ungodly. And then we try to cover it up. We have to look good. And we can't admit that we make mistakes and that we fail. We can't admit to our limitations. We can't look weak. We can't look bad. We've always got to look good, so we keep this uh, this front up all the time. We conspire to keep silent about our about our sins instead of just being open and honest and and realistic about what we are. I've often thought that a church really ought to be a kind of an AA gathering where we uh, we stand up and we say, "Hello, I'm I'm David Roper. I'm a sinner." And uh, we could talk freely and openly about the areas where we're struggling and, and uh, the mistakes that, that we've made because we understand that we don't have to prove anything. We don't have to uh, look good. We can look very, very bad. Uh, what's important is what God is doing within us. There, there's progress. God is not looking, He doesn't look for perfection. He just looks for progress. That's all. We don't have to be defensive, we don't have to protect ourselves. Uh, I have one illustration in my, it always comes to mind when I think of non-defensiveness. It happened to me uh, years ago when I was living in California, and I was involved in a series of leadership meetings in Palo Alto, California. A group of businessmen in that area invited some men from Washington, D.C. who worked with the fellowship there, Doug Coe and and uh, Dick Halverson, who now is the chaplain to the Senate, and a number of other leaders to come to that area and work with businessmen. And because I was working with university students at the time, I got to sort of hang around these fellows. And and, uh, for me, it was just a wonderful, memorable time. And I remember one day we were standing in the lobby of a hotel there in Palo Alto, and apparently Doug uh, Coe had made some arrangement with the manager there uh, for a special rate uh, they were housing the team there and, and they had arranged for a special uh, rate for the team as long as they ate there in the restaurant they were supposed to take all their meals there that was part of the deal well the food was so bad at this particular hotel none of us could stand it so we'd go across the street to Ricky's Hyde House and we'd eat down there and uh, I happened to be standing in the lobby when this manager came out he just burst out of the office and he was furious he was red in the face and. He walked right up to Doug Coe, who was the head of the team, and he swore at him, and he and he said, You promised that the team would eat here, and, and we made a special arrangement for you, and they're going across the street, and this isn't right. And I immediately got very, very defensive. I didn't have to say anything, but I had all my uh, arguments. I was beginning to line them up. And uh, Doug looked at him for a minute, and he said, I said You're absolutely right. And he said, w- we're wrong. We shouldn't have done that. I apologize. We won't do it again. And, uh, of course, it was like sticking a pin in a balloon. The, uh, the fellow uh, really had nothing more to say. But I have never forgotten that gentle, non-defensive response. And I thought, now there's a man that understands grace. See? He didn't have to defend himself. He knows that God is on his side. He knows he makes mistakes. It's okay. See? He can be non-defensive because... Uh, uh, God has already taken the, uh, the place of, uh, of defense for him. Now, uh, the second mark of those uh, that, um, that are preoccupied with externals is compulsion. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised. That's always a mark of legalism. They push. They're intrusive, invasive. They're always trying to make things happen. They're demanding and insistent. And when you're under that system, you you never feel like you quite measure up. You never feel accepted. As a matter of fact, you always feel like you've been beat up. I've been in some uh, services like that. I rarely agree with John Lennon on anything, but uh, sometimes the church service makes me nervous. Uh, Carolyn and I were in one church uh, in northern Washington a couple of summers ago on vacation. And we hadn't been to church for several weeks. And we were really looking forward to being ministered to. And uh, the fellow just spent the whole time beating us up. And I I thought as I was going away, my goodness, if I lived here, I certainly would never go back to that church. I've got enough troubles of my own. Um, It was a terrible experience. I kept thinking, why don't they comfort a fellow here? You know, that's... Sometimes you do have to afflict the comfortable, but, uh, my, it's so good then to comfort the, you know, comfort the afflicted. Uh, and, uh, but you don't see that kind of thing happening under a legalistic system. they are they, demands, and they're pushy, but under grace, you don't push. It's Jesus who pulls. It's his wonderful attraction. As I said a couple of Sundays ago, as you walk with him, he just rubs off on you. The more you look into his face, the more you see of his beauty, the more of it you want. And uh, the compulsion then comes from within. It's not pressure from without, but a desire within to please him. Because he loves you so much, you see. It's so different. Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we all with unveil face. We don't try to hide, we don't try to keep the Lord from seeing the blemishes, you know, the the seams, the the dark parts of our life. We just open it up before him and, and as we gaze into his face, we are changed from one degree of likeness to him to another. Paul says this is our ministry to bring beauty into people's lives by getting them to, to walk along with the Lord and fellowship with him. And that's what Paul says <laughs> These people don't do. They push. They compel you. The third thing they do is that they fix on signs rather than the reality. These people were uh, engrossed in circumcising people. That was the big thing. Well, just a small surgical procedure. What's the big deal? Well, for them, it was everything. You could not be in the community of faith. You couldn't be in the family of God unless you were circumcised. They demanded it. People do that today with baptism. You're baptism, you're already, I'm baptized. You're not in, you see. You have to have this outward mark of relationship before you're in. Well, what they're doing is confusing the sign with the reality. Circumcision was a sign of, of relationship with God. It was a mark of ownership. It was a, it was a symbol that one's humanity now belonged to God. And uh, in the Old Testament, it was a, a wonderful symbol of being placed into the community of, of God's people, into the family of God. We know from reading the book of Galatians that circumcision came after Abraham's affirmation of faith. Paul argues that way in Galatians. It was a sign of his justification, not what, uh, what caused it, you see. And uh, yet these people fix on the, the sign itself. C.S. Lewis describes that as a dog-like attitude. This is what he means. If you point, you know, if you're trying to get your dog to do something, to go over to another part of the room, and you point to that portion of the room, you know what your dog will do? He'll come over and smell your finger. And uh, that's a preoccupation with the sign, you see, rather than the reality. We have a sign out front that says, uh, ooh, 12 years ago, Cole Community Church meets here. Well, that's not Cole Community Church out there. It's just a sign. We don't confuse that sign with the people of God. The people are the church. That sign simply points to the place where we meet. I have a, Carolyn and I have a dear friend that used to be a missionary in Kentucky. And he tells a story about one day he was, uh, uh, he just moved to a little town in Kentucky, looked across the street, noticed that his neighbor had a 12-foot flagpole out in front of his house, and he was putting up the flag. So uh, uh, he went over to talk to him about it, found out this man was a very patriotic fellow. A lot of us have been doing the same thing. We we have one up in front of our house, and uh, it's a good thing to do. And this fellow thought, well, I better get a flag. So he went out and bought a flagpole. He put a flag up every day, and... He watched his friend go out every morning and run a flag up the mast and uh, he'd take it down every evening and he'd fold it properly and put it away and one day he happened to look across the street and he saw two big black cars pull up and a bunch of revenueers jumped out of the cars and went inside the house and uh, put him in handcuffs and took him away because he had a still down in the basement he was selling moonshine uh, whiskey he wasn't paying the federal tax on whiskey and uh, you see the problem here's a fixation with the sign but the heart wasn't there. This is what Paul is talking about. They, they fix on the sign rather than the, the reality. Some folks do the same thing with baptism. As I mentioned, baptism is a sign of our being placed into Christ. We die with him. We're raised again to a newness of life. It's just a sign. That's all a symbol. You don't have to be baptized to get next to God. If you put your faith in Christ, then the reality has already occurred. Baptism is just a symbol of that uh, reality. The fourth mark of those that fix on outward symbols is what I describe as a cross avoidance. They compel you to be circumcised simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. And in contrast to that, Paul says in verse 14, I boast. In the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, that same cross has crucified me to the world and the world to me. In other words, he doesn't have anything more to do with the world. Because it's the world that decries the cross. The cross is a symbol of our failure. The cross indicates that that you and I are terribly sinful and that we ought to be very ashamed of our sin. And that our sin was so heinous that it required the life of God. The cross tells us that we are utterly helpless, that we cannot save ourselves, that God Himself had to come and save us. And that idea is anathema to the world. They don't want to hear that. You can talk about truth and justice and mercy and goodness and and morality, and you can even talk about Jesus Christ in our world, but you talk about the cross. And people get flustered, they get embarrassed, they get angry. They don't want to hear that. Because the reality of the cross speaks to us of the awfulness of our lives. And uh, that's why these people try to avoid it. They don't want to bear the shame of the cross. Paul says, I will willingly do so. I boast in the cross. I brag about what shows my weakness. I even take the hard shots because of it. He goes uh, in verse 17. He says, don't let anybody trouble me anymore. The marks of my authority here are not the stripes on my sleeve, but the stripes on my back. The beatings, the batterings, the hurts, the wounds, the scars that he bore, because he was willing to preach the cross. Paul said when he came to the Corinthians, I did Determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and in that bastion of intellectualism, scholarship, Greek thought, Roman uh, dignity, and uh, he, he just continued to preach the cross. That's the message. You see, we are so bad, and God is so good that He had to bridge the gap from the other side, and so He came, and He Himself bore our sins, our terrible moral awfulness in his own body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness now um, lest we uh, forget we need to keep the matter straight here verse 15 the real issue is that salvation is not a matter of circumcision or uncircumcision but a new creation see what he's saying it's not outward, it's inward now, what I do is what God does. I can't create anything out of nothing. Only God can. So he goes back to the, I think the analogy here is, is the Genesis 1 creation story. Uh, according to Genesis, the earth was without form and void, shapeless and empty. Uh, the Hebrew uses the little sing-song cliche. It was tohu vabohu. tohu vobohu. It's like our word, higgly-piggly. It means it was a mess. It was chaotic. It was dark. Everything was turned upside down and inside out. Everything was wrong. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And then he began to create order out of that chaos. And he made something out of nothing. And that's what he's doing to you and me. He takes our... The dark parts of our souls, the chaotic mess that we've made out of our lives, and he says, let there be light. Paul uh, actually argues that way in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, the same God who said, let there be light, has, has said, let there be light in terms of my own uh, soul. He spoke into the darkness of my own, my own heart, and the, the light dawned. Uh, in Paul's experience, it was very graphic, on you know, his way up to Damascus. And uh, he was dead wrong. He had letters with him giving him permission to, to uh, put Christians in jail and kill them if necessary. Thought he was doing what was right. And God revealed himself to him in a, in a great manifestation of light, truth, reality. And all of a sudden, Paul came to his senses. He said, I thought I was doing what was right, but I was dead wrong. See, that's what happens with us. We think we're Okay. And then the light of the gospel dawns upon us. And we see the cross and how far wrong we've gone. And we say, I was wrong. I've been wrong all my life. Which, again, is why people don't want to embrace the cross. They don't want to make that admission. But when we say that, then we become a child of God. We're renewed. There's a new creation. Everything becomes new. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are, are new. He's in the process of creating in us order, meaning, beauty, purpose. And one of these days he's going to take us home and we're going to be everything that we ever wanted to be. He sees us right now as he sees his son in all of his beauty and all of his perfection. Some of you may have seen the story in Reader's Digest a couple of months ago. This woman who was trying to get the attention of a concert master to listen to uh, her son play his violin. And, of course, this man probably got dozens of requests like that, and he didn't want anything to do with her. And so she, uh, she brought to him a tape recording in a little player, and she said, would you at least listen to him play? And uh, uh, he said, uh, reluctantly, well, okay. So she t- turned it on, and it, it, was, it was wonderful. It was marvelous. And the concert master was just uh, astonished. He said, what magnificent music, what genius. This is your son, he says. She said, no, this is Yasha Heifetz but he sounds just like my son. And when I read that, I thought, that's the way God looks at you and me. Here we are, sawing away, dissonant notes, hitting a few sour notes. He says, ah, he sounds just like my son. And one of these days we will, see. That's why we can be non-defensive. We don't have to apologize for the missed cues and the bad notes and the failings, because he sees us as perfected in In Christ. Um, Paul says an interesting thing in verse 16. Those who walk by this rule. May they have. Or they have actually peace. And mercy. Peace and mercy. The rule he's referring to is the new creation. Verse 15. It's not outward. It's inward. It's not what man does. Not what woman does. It's what God does. It's his work within. That's the rule. Uh, he actually uses the word from which we get our word "cannon," not uh, the kind of cannon that shoots uh, uh, munitions. It's uh, he means a canon, a rule of thumb. Uh, it, the word was our word "keen" comes from it too. It's the idea of a measuring stick. This is the measuring stick by which you measure everything. This is the canon. This is the rule. What's the rule? New creation. It's not what you're doing. It's what God is doing in you. It's not your efforts. It's God's work. Remember the Pharisees who came to Jesus and said, What shall we do to work the works of God? Jesus said, This is the work of God. You believe. Just keep on believing. That's how you get in on everything God has for you. Just keep trusting it, keep believing it. And uh, he says, if you walk by this rule, two things will be the result. One is peace, <coughs> tranquility. You stop worrying about where you've been and where you're going. You stop being preoccupied with your own sin. You quit, quit dwelling on your own grief, and your own guilt. Uh, people that understand grace, in in my experience, are are uh, simple, relaxed people. They aren't uptight. They aren't always trying harder. They're not working at this business of being a Christian. Peace. If you understand this rule, and if you're walking by this rule, then you have peace. And secondly, you have mercy. Now, that's a wonderful word. I would expect Paul to say grace, because that's been the theme that he has embraced all the way through the book. But he uses mercy, because, uh, I think, because it's the softer term and the most meaningful term at this point. Grace is God's uh, gift to, to the unworthy. Mercy is God's help for the helpless. That's you and me. Those of us that can't uh, can't do anything for ourselves. Those of us that have tried hard to change and we can't change. We've tried hard to erase the memories of the past and we can't get rid of them. We've tried hard to undo the wrong that we've done and we can't. We can't do it. We're utterly helpless. I, I sometimes ask people, where's the sin in the Bible? Heaven helps those that help themselves, and they always try hard to find it, and then it's not there. The Bible doesn't say that. As a matter of fact, the Bible says just the opposite. Heaven helps those that are helpless. And I'll tell you what, it's it's a great thing to fall into the hands of, of a merciful God. Uh, David as you know, did some terrible things in his life, and perhaps the most uh, serious of his sins came as a result of a terrible arrogance on his part. And and he knew that he would suffer the consequences, and God said to him, you have two options. Do you want to fall into the hands of man, or do you want to fall into the hands of God? And David said, let me fall into the hands of God. Because, as C.S. Lewis said, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of man. What a great thing it is to just fall into the hands of a merciful God. And uh, even though we're helpless, and uh, even though we're struggling, and even though it doesn't look like there's any way out, it's just great to know that God knows the way out, that He loves us despite our failings and our flaws, and He gives help to the helpless. I'd like to read something that I uh, wrote several years ago. Um, some of you may recall uh, the movie Playing for Time. It was a movie about uh, Fanla Finla, uh who was in an orchestra composed of Jewish women who were spared the gas chambers at Auschwitz as long as they played well. Their lives were reduced to a single proposition, do well or die. We sometimes feel like Phanela, thinking God has given us a very difficult instrument to play and is watching every move, listening to every sound, waiting for us to hit some sour note. Our lives are reduced to a single proposition, do well or die. But it isn't so. Despite the miscues and the dissonant chords in our lives, the untuned and untunable nature of it, Jesus loves us. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. David said that before the cross. But you see, the cross reached back into time, and God could be gracious to David on the same basis in which he is gracious to us. Despite our intentions to live right, we've failed, we've gone very wrong. We may believe that God can't love the likes of us, but he does. He suffers fools gladly. He has compassion on those who fear him. Beyond our determination and earnestness solidly lies God's persistence. Theologians speak of the perseverance of man, but what of God's perseverance? His pulling, prodding, calling, wooing. We may have given up on him, but he will never give up on us. Even if we're on the run trying to get away from him, he's in pursuit. Those footsteps behind us are his. He's gaining on us. Though we take flight, he'll pursue us with his love. As Francis Thompson said, he's the hound of heaven. He stays with us to the end. He's not put off by false starts or sour notes. He's the God of the hard case the difficult temperament, the unfit, and the misfit. He will not give up until he sees his character formed in us. No failure is final. He's the God of another chance. Mercy and peace be to those that walk by this rule. And then uh, Paul ends with this uh, final note. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. He bore the marks of Jesus on his uh, body. That's how we uh, came to hear the gospel. He proclaimed it, and then he wrote it. And as a result of our hearing of it, we can experience the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in our spirit. Now, we've come to the end of Galatians, but I hope for you this is just the beginning of uh, a whole new perspective on the Christian life. Some of you have told me that uh, you really did not understand grace. You thought of God as a very difficult person to relate to, very uncomfortable to be around, because you felt that he was always out of sorts because you weren't measuring up. I hope you understand now that he loves you. He will always love you. His love goes on forever. Forever's as far as he'll go, as Alabama says, if I can distort their song. He'll never ever forsake you. Let's pray, Father. As we come together around this table, we uh, we want to we want to focus on the cross, not on the symbol here on the wall, but on the reality which it represents—that place where you. Yourself bore our sins in your body. We don't deserve that sort of love. We can't earn it. We've never done anything that would make us worthy of it. We can only accept it and appreciate it. And that's what we want to do this morning. We come in a spirit of praise. Praise. Asking that you would lead us into a deeper worship and a greater love for you this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.